You're listening to Tarazi Tuesdays with the Bible is Literature. Father Mark Hulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to Tarazi Tuesdays with the Bible as Literature podcast. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. So today we have a very exciting and interesting topic. Like all of the metaphors and scripture within your school, Father Paul, everything is made concrete. And so we're going to talk today about Eden, the word Eden, and the four rivers. Again, when we talk about Eden in a religious context, people imagine a paradise, but there is no imagining in the new Antiochian school. You have to understand the concrete reference and understand terminology in terms of its function within the broader narrative. So tell us, Father Paul, in your book, in your lectures on the rise of scripture, what's going on with Eden, the four rivers? Okay, I'm going to first begin with that male person at the beginning, referred to both as Ha'adam and then Adam. Now, Ha'adam would be the human being, and it would be everybody, both. You could hear in Genesis 1 how they were created, him, because Adam is masculine in Hebrew, and then them, that would be the male and the female. So Ha'adam and Adam, obviously the author opted for the personal name Adam to make that person representative of everybody. The first Ha'adam is Adam. I'm sure anyone would have done that. But I'm mentioning this to move to this strange description of a garden which is localized. Obviously, you have one person, he cannot be living on earth all over the place. Only Plato can make it this way. But he has to be somewhere, and this somewhere is the garden, notice again, that God planted. So his intention was that the human being would live in an oasis. But then, strangely enough, it's just amazing. You have the text mentioning a river coming out of the garden and then spreading into four rivers that cover a large area. Number one, four, obviously, is the numeral of universality, which means God had in mind the entire earth which has been prepared for in Genesis 1, where the earth is the entire mass of dry land. So again, keep in mind always in the first three chapters up to chapter 5, where you have suddenly Adam, the individual, because then you have a genealogy. So this play is very important to understand what the author is doing. He is taking what we call pars pro toto, in other words, a part of something indicating the totality of something. And you have it in most languages where the term earth means a piece of land and then it means the entire orb. But interestingly enough, and that's the topic of today, is that these four rivers are not the Amazon and the Mississippi and the Ganges and so on. No, they are specific rivers. I mean, you have 
the Euphrates and the Tigris that are mentioned by name and no one could miss that. But then these, when you hear Genesis 2, are mentioned at the end in verse 14. And the name of the third river is Tigris, which flows east of Assyria, specifically the author is mentioning Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. I mean, the Euphrates is all over the place. But beforehand, and interestingly, it's beforehand, so the author is drawing your attention to these two, since Tigris and Euphrates, everybody knows about them. He uses two words, Pishon and Gihon, or Pishon and Gihon, that reflect something overflowing, gushing, that's the, root, the two roots, which means it's a river, any river, like the Tigris and the Euphrates. But then what becomes important is the location. Notice how the Tigris is followed by which flows east of Assyria, but the first two Paishan, it is the one which flows around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. So we have two things. You have the entire earth of Havilah. It is as though the author is stressing a big expanse. And then, out of the blue, mention of gold that is repeated. Again, why would he do that? And the name of the second is Gihon that flows around, again, the whole land of Kush. Now, Kush is, if you like, southern Egypt, Ethiopia, and so on. It's basically Egypt. Let me jump to Genesis chapter 10, where we have the sons of Ham. Kush, Egypt, Pat, and Canaan in verse 6. Then the son of Kush, Seba, Havilah, Sapta, Rama, and Sapteka. Now, it's very interesting that the author is really including the most southern part of what I refer to in my book as the Syro-Arabian Desert. Just look at a physical map. There is no Syrian desert and Arabian desert. It's just one desert. We call them by two names to differentiate. You can call the middle Jordanian desert and so on and so forth. <laughs> but it's the one desert. But the stress is obviously on the north because the authors, as I say in my book, were there around Mesopotamia. But still, the southern part of that same desert is in the purview of the author. And we can see that in the specific mention of Cush and Havilah. Let me go back to Genesis 10. I mentioned 6-7, the sons of Cush are so and so. But notice, Cush became the father of Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter and so on. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, and Akkad, all of them in the land of Shinar, which is clearly Mesopotamia. That's very interesting. You are hearing that Nimrod is the son of Cush, way back to the south, but he was the king of around Babel and Nineveh, Mesopotamia. From that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh. So there is no way the hearer is not going to get the impression that the author is presenting an entire quote-unquote world for his epic, which is the surrounding area around Syrian 
Arabian desert. I say surrounding because you need the mention of cities and people and civilizations. Let's go back to Genesis 2, but all this is given life through water, as we say in English, is watered by the four rivers that come from the one river. Remember in 2.10, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. Very interesting. It flowed to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. You see, the literary expansion of Eden over that entire area. So the author obviously has in mind, I have no doubt, an entire region, a whole region that supported the earliest civilizations in that area and perhaps in the world. So very important. Let me make an aside. We have the mention of the Euphrates where Jeremiah threw his book. But then this book is picked up by Daniel. Remember that in the book of Daniel, we have the second mention of a prophet referring to another prophet. In Jeremiah, we have a reference to Micah. And in Daniel, we have a specific mention to Jeremiah. But then you have a switch from the Euphrates to the Tigris. Daniel is around the Tigris. So I think the intention is that Daniel was written closer. I mean, the last part of the story of Daniel is clearly Alexander and his followers. And then he crossed beyond the Tigris to go to Iran and India. Now, let me jump to something that I stressed earlier, which is the mention of gold twice. I mean, why twice? And then the author adds, delium and onyx stone are there. In other words, it's a very rich area. The Romans called it the Arabia Felix and so on. But in Genesis, gold is mentioned specifically once in Genesis 13 and once in Genesis 24. I'm going to read them very quickly. Now, Abram was very rich in cattle, in silver, and in gold. Twice in Genesis 2, and then suddenly only once in 13. But then that Abraham had gold picks up in the story of the preparation for the marriage of his son Isaac. I'm going to read it very quickly. Chapter 24, verses 22, 35, and 53. When the camels had done drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a half shekel and two bracelets and so on. This is the servant of Abraham, Abraham, who went to ask for the hand of the daughter of Laban. Then he says, the Lord has greatly blessed my master and he has become great. He has given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, men servants and so on. And then the last one and the servant brought forth surely of silver and of gold and Raymond gave it to Rebekah. Now, if you hear the scripture, don't go to Google and Wikipedia and so on. Where does the gold come from? It comes from the Havilah, which is way in the south. Now, my hearers are saying yes, no. And here comes immediately in chapter 25, after that chapter 24, we hear these are the sons of Ishmael and these are their names. Remember, Ishmael is the other son of Abram by their villages, their encampments. And then it says in verse 18, they dwelt from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. Notice, very interesting. Havilah and Shur are way in the south. 
right east of Egypt, but notice the addition in the direction of Assyria. He settled against all his people. I mean, there is no way to miss the fact that the author is saying that Abraham and his children, Ishmael was his child. Remember, he was circumcised before Isaac was born. And obviously, I don't want to enter on an aside regarding the Muslims relating themselves because from that area to Ishmael, Ishmaelites. So if you like, someday when I speak about the Quran, I'll stress the fact, I'm sure it's intended, that it grew from that same wilderness, but from that southern area. Very interesting, but I don't want you to get excited and ask me about that, especially you, Father Mark. Okay, now, all this information is from the book of Genesis. And again, in literature, you have to connect things together. The way before we started taping, we had this conversation where Richard was sharing with us what he discovered in Hosea in conjunction with Genesis and Deuteronomy. That's how one has to do. The way I just found, you know, by curiosity, I said, let me see this gold. Why should gold be mentioned twice? And then I found the solution. So this entirety of the area is intentional. Nothing is left to the side. You notice the mention of the genealogy of Ishmael and later the genealogy of Esau. So God is interested in all the peoples that are mentioned in chapter 10. But let me go one step further and show you how this is part of the deal way towards the end of the Bible, you know, the book of Sirach, which is, if you like, one of the, let's call it the latest books and so on, very important. I refer to it very often. And I'm going to read, it's important to hear the entire text where we speak about wisdom, which is in chapter 24, quickly. Wisdom will praise herself and will glory in the midst of her people. In the assembly of the Most High, she will open her mouth, and in the presence of his oaths, she will glory. I came forth from the mouth of the Most Highs and covered the earth like a mist. So you can see, it's the universal wisdom. But then you hear that it teaches everybody and so on and so forth. I want to jump to the last part of 24, which is very important for me. So again, come to me who you desire me and eat your fill of my produce and so on. But where is that wisdom to be found? Suddenly, at the end of the chapter, beginning with 23 through 34, and I'm going to read it in its fullness, all this is the book of the covenant of the Most High God, the law which Moses commanded us as an inheritance for the congregations of Jacob. Okay? As in Job, as in wisdom of Solomon, the law is the wisdom. That's why Paul is very harsh against wisdom linked with the church of Corinth, which is Achaia, which is ancient Greece, and he brings to it the law. That's verse 23. All this is the book of the covenant. Then it fills men with wisdom like the Pyshon and like the Tigris at the time of the first fruits. It makes them full of understanding like the Euphrates and like the Jordan at harvest time. It makes instruction shine forth like light, like the Gihon at the time of vintage. 
Notice the following verse. Just as the first man did not know her perfectly, the last one has not fathomed her, for her thought is more abundant than the sea, and so on. Then, I went forth like a canal from a river, and like a water channel into a garden. I said, I will water my orchard and drench my garden plot. And lo, my canal became a river, and my river became a sea. I will again make instruction shine forth like the dawn, and I will make it shine afar. I will again pour out teaching like prophecy, and leave it to all future generations. Observe that I have not labored for myself alone, but for all who seek instruction, which harks back to the prologue. I mean, all these friends put together... And by now, everybody knows my preferred phrase, cannot be happenstance. By the way, this indicates to me that the Bible was produced at the same time. I mean, you have the four rivers in Genesis and only together way at the end in a book that is not even in the Hebrew canon. All this cannot be happenstance. So this is how I view the function of Eden and the Four Rivers. And again, I go back to what I say, you know, if you want to understand the Bible, it's enough to read the book of Genesis. And in my book, The Rise of Scripture, I compacted that to Genesis 1 through 11. And while writing the book, I realized it's 1 through 4. I say the same thing about the book of Matthew in the New Testament. But then I say, however, to be able to understand Genesis 1 through 4, meaning to understand the intention of the author, what the author is saying, one has to know the entire Bible. It's a circle which is not vicious because it brings life and it gives you that understanding, which is obviously the wisdom. And we know that the wisdom, I mean, even scholars say that Western scholar wisdom is a trait of the tribal. I can't call it civilization, but setting, you know, you have an old man teaching the young people who are fool and uh, so ultimately, God is that shepherd. And in my book, I mention how when he walks, he talek. In chapter 3, he is walking as a shepherd. A lot of times when people talk about wisdom as it's discussed in Proverbs or Ben Sira, they're talking about a kind of universal wisdom that all the nations have access to. But now it sounds to me what you're saying is that the wisdom originates with God in Genesis, and that's the specific wisdom that Scripture is saying goes out to the nation. So it's not a wisdom that the nations already possess, but one that begins with God and then goes out to the nations by means of Torah. Am I understanding you correctly? <laughs> Absolutely. And the people have to read just 1 Corinthians 1 and 2. It's there. <laughs> But all this was twisted by the people whom I criticize very openly and harshly, the Greco-Roman fathers. Let me go on this tangent, because it's in the book I've mentioned it, is that they twisted everything by having not listened to the caveat of Paul in Romans 9 through 11. They even devised that sacrilege, that the way the law prepared the Jews for Christ Greek philosophy prepared the nations for Christ. I mean, where do you find this in Scripture? <laughs> you have Job with his three old people and then a young man trying to impress them. And God shuts everybody off and then appears in a whirlwind 
as wisdom. Without going more in detail, you know, I cannot but agree with you, but then I'm saying to both of you and to my hearers that it's very hard to communicate that because what was against the grain of scripture became the grain of theology. And most of us, if not all of us, start with the creed that we have in our mind, and then we try to read scripture. So going back to the text, as we try to do today, questions that, questions that. The city is criticized in chapter 4. It is criticized in chapter 11. I mean, who can miss that? The name Zion of the city of God is rooted in the root sea, which is parched land and desert. You know, people have to know that, and we have to just iterate it. Don't worry about whether the people are listening to you, because even if they are listening, they are not most probably understanding what you're saying. What do you do? You continue planting the seed. Hopefully it will hit more and more people. And the seed is the seed of the sower, and we have only one sower. It's interesting, Father Paul, because I've often said or equated Hellenism with human nature. It's funny, you talk about how you have these strikingly anti-city technicalities in the text and people don't hear it. I think it's not just the formulated ideas that prevent us from hearing it. It's just the way that we construct everything. In our mind, it can't be in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus is saying the wealthy will not enter the kingdom. It can't be because we're wealthy or because our friends are wealthy or whatever. That is a difficult thing to dismantle, even if we assume that Hellenism is not a factor. And so now you have Plato, who is reinforcing this human tendency, which I believe is a survival mechanism. We make assumptions about the world. And I think it's just a never-ending battle. What you're describing is a true phenomenon. I could say to someone, you're purple, and they would say, thank you for calling me red. It's unbelievable. You brought to my mind something. Let me share it with you. It's in the book. It's a passage that I added at the last minute to the first chapter of my book, which is an overarching introduction. I called it Greek philosophy as entrapment. Okay, I'm going to read you. I know Father Mark is getting excited about that, but I'm going to read you one thing that is going to make you smile. The choice of the serpent fits perfectly the scenario because its skin is smooth, slick, as well as naked in the sense that it's not covered by hair or fur. Thus the serpent was beguiling precisely because it appeared similar in its nakedness to the humans when compared to the other animals that are covered with a layer of fur or thick hair. The humans are more prone to relate to it and by extension to be more easily duped by it through the medium of an engaging dialogue, quote-unquote, a la Plato. We were taught to assume that the Socratic dialogue method is an equal opportunity among those who have the impression that they are engaged. In fact, it is ultimately Socrates who is authoritatively expounding his viewpoint that ends up being the lesson, the teaching. The serpent stand in for Plato only seems to be engaging Eve, whereas in reality he is leading her, quote-unquote, ultimately out of the garden. Wow. That's wow. a big wow, brother. <laughs> yeah. Hey, the book is out. 
Anyway, I cannot but agree with you. I mean, Plato appeals to everybody because he appeals, basically, he was super intelligent to human nature. You know, those who have seminars, let students discuss and so on. But the teacher is sitting there and he's going to say his ultimate word and correct the people. I tell my students, you know, let's make it easy on all of us. Just sit down, close your mouth and let me talk because outside the room, you're going to do whatever you want anyway. But in this class, I want it to be remembered that these things were said. In other words, the approach of just like the Bedouin father opening his mouth, teaching people say he's imposing. He's not imposing anything because his children, grandchildren will do whatever they will decide to do. But we like to play around that because of the equality imposed on all of us mentally a la Plato. In other words, each one of us has an eternal soul. This is where the platonic equality lies. And then Plato writes his books that overwhelm everybody. I mean, it's a contradiction in terms. Here my text continues. On the other hand, the unilateral command of God to Adam and by extension to Eve is rooted in his care for them whose aim is to have them enjoy their stay in the garden. Anyway, we started the four rivers and I'm happy with this podcast because it shows also on the side how Matters are interrelated, especially in the introductory texts of a book. Take, for instance, Hosea 1-2, Ezekiel chapter 1, Isaiah chapter 1. You know, things are integrated. You know, hearing you talk about Satanas using the Socratic method to lure Eve out of God's provision for his people, it just reminds me of this teaching about false humility in Paul's letters and in the Bible generally. I mean, there is no such thing as a humble human being. There is an arrogant human being, and there is an arrogant human being who disguises his arrogance as humility. Well, let's hear it in English. You know, when you say, I am humble, what is the first word you hear? (laughs) (laughs) This is why only experts in grammar will enter the kingdom. (laughs) I am humble. <laughs> Sounds very much that I remember uh, there is a Tarazi from Lebanon, a distant cousin of mine. He said the Tarazis are very well known for their attractiveness, intelligence, and humility. <laughs> <laughs> That's their Trinitarian trait. <laughs> Fantastic. Fantastic, Father Paul. Great episode today. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you both. It's really, as I told you, a blessing for me. You know, it's a blessing. Yesterday I was telling my editor how I feel depleted. The answer was, Father Paul, you did a lot. You're entitled to be depleted. It's a blessing for us. Thank you, Father. Thank uh, both of you. And let's continue. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.